for an incoming transmission from the library. It appears that Blue Stocking has been able to make contact and the steampunk dollhouse will begin transmitting momentarily. Stay tuned for more news from these intrepid defenders of all our literary freedoms. Stocking. I will be your host, your curator, your librarian, your angry lady with a mic. Uh, if you are a returning listener, you already all know all of that, and I really, really thank you for coming back. If you're new, I thank you for tuning in. And I also want to thank all of you, each of you. I'd like to thank you all separately, but I can't. Um, I want to thank everyone who has subscribed to this. When I started the show at the end of May, uh, I honestly didn't really think that I would have a whole lot of listeners for the simple fact that this is a very, very niche subject. It's a very narrow area and it's, you know, scholarly and critical. And I didn't think I'd have very many listeners, but if the Squarespace analytics are correct, they're kind of weird. I don't know if I trust them because according to Squarespace, I currently have 1,068 people subscribed to the RSS. Uh, it doesn't give me a breakdown of iTunes or Overcast or Stitch, you know, um, not Stitcher, but Google Play or any of those. But I supposedly have 1,068 subscribers as of this morning. Um, that's amazing. It seems excessively high, again, for such a, a narrow and deep focus. But if it's real, I'm so glad to have each and every one of you listening. Um, and even if I only had 20 of you, I would still do it. Now, in the last episode, one of the themes that we discussed was social manipulation through the drug trade. And I mentioned uh, the British tactic of flooding China with opium in the 19th century and the dramatic change that it caused in the economy and the social hierarchy. Um, for a really good, uh, albeit NSFW, account of a similar um, effect here in America, there's a podcast called The Dollop. It's very funny. Look it up. Uh, it's an American history podcast uh, done by two comedians. But they had some recent episodes titled Opium in the U.S., Part 1 and 2, and it's a very, very good account of narcotics in America um, from the beginning with the laudanum and, you know, the opium and the heroin uh, all the way up through the present day. Uh, I think it's, it was, a, it's, like I said, it's a very good account, um, very funny, um, very explicit. They're worse than I am, but they are, they're good guys and uh, they tell a good story. So I would suggest you look it up. I believe it was the beginning of July those two episodes came out. So again, the Dollop Podcast, Opium in the U.S. Part 1 and 2. And actually, that is all the notes that I have this week. So uh, let's talk. Alrighty. Today we are discussing the Alchemy Wars trilogy by Ian Tregillis. Um, really good series. But before we get into the actual discussion of the books, I want to cover two things that uh, are kind of important to know um, as you go into the books. So 
The first one, if you're a science fiction fan of any any type, you're probably familiar with Asimov's Laws uh, that Isaac Asimov came up with as far as um, robots being in our lives. Um, the first law is a robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm. Uh, the second is that a robot must obey orders given to it by human beings, except where the orders would conflict with the first law. And number three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. That is really important to remember. And then the other thing that you need to know, a lot of people may not be familiar with this unless you're really big on fairy tales and folk tales, uh, but the idea of the Gesh. The Gesh is, uh, you'll usually see this in Celtic mythology. It's a form of magical compulsion, um, or more often it's, it's a curse. It's, it's really just an awful, awful curse. Um, those who are under a Gesh, and just to clarify, that is spelled G-E-A-S. It is Celtic. It's pronounced Gesh or Geisha. Um, they are required to fulfill conditions or there's a penalty and everything just goes boom and nothing, you know, you don't get what you were trying to get. Um, if you have more than one Gesh placed upon you, it's a problem um, because most often there are more than one Gesh on a person and they generally conflict, which is what makes the story. Uh, the most well-known for me, and probably a lot of you are going to know the best, is the story of the six swans, or the wild swans, or the children of Lear. Um, the basic story, the one that I know the best, is that there were six brothers and one sister, and the sister was the youngest um, of a king, generally Ireland, uh, but could be other places. The king, the, the queen dies in childbirth, giving birth to the daughter. The king will eventually remarry, and the queen, the stepmother, as we stepmothers are prone to be is wicked and does not she wants she's going to have her own child or she has her own child by the king and so she doesn't want the boys to inherit anything so she turns the brothers into swans uh the sister is is destitute she's distraught she makes a deal or the fairies offer her a deal uh she can free her brothers she can turn them back into human and what will happen is the brothers, once a year, usually at midsummer, that magical time of midsummer, the in-between times, the brothers will become human again, sometimes for half an hour, sometimes the full night. Um, and so she can, ex theoretically, she would be able to explain to them what's going to happen, but she can't because here's what she has to do. The sister can free her brothers by weaving them shirts uh, out of, sometimes it's nettles or some other really painful plant that is not meant to be woven. But she has to do everything by hand, all by herself. Uh, she can't use a loom or anything. Or I think she can use a loom, but she has to gather all the materials herself. And nettles are nasty. If you've ever fallen into a pit of nettles, and I have, it is really uncomfortable. It is horrible. But she has to knit or to weave six shirts out of nettles for her brothers. And the entire time that she is doing this, for however long it takes... She cannot speak. She cannot make a sound, not even in her own defense, not even to explain to her brother. She can't speak. If she speaks, the whole thing is null and void, and that's it. They'll be swans forever. Um, and weaving nettles, as you can imagine, is going to be painful. It's not going to feel good. Uh, a lot of the stories say that it took her usually the magical number of seven years uh, to do it. Um, and she, in this time, bad things happened to her. Um, 
But good things, too. She, a man falls in love with her, and a king in, in his own right, or a nobleman falls in love with her and wants to marry her. And she has a child with him, all the while still not speaking, still on her mysterious task of weaving these shirts out of nettles. Her hands are horrible. They're calloused and blistered and mangled, but she keeps going. She keeps going. But the nobleman, or her husband's, or her mother-in-law, doesn't like her. And since the woman obviously is not going to speak up on her own behalf, the mother-in-law accuses her of witchcraft because that was always the best accusation to make to get someone out of your life quickly. So the woman, uh, the woman under the gash, the sister, she's tied to a stake. Uh, there's all the shirts are done except for one. She had the sixth shirt was just missing a sleeve. And she happens, they happen to put her up on the stake on the night that um, her brothers are coming back. They know she's in trouble. They come back. They all land on the platform where she's about to be burned. She manages to get free. She flings the shirts over their heads. They all turn back into human except the sixth brother who is left with a swan wing because the sleeve wasn't finished. And then finally she can speak. She can scream. She can cry out. She can... Get back at her mother-in-law. That's a gesh. Um, <laughs> so geshes are not fun. They're painful. They're horrible. They're cruel. And they are a big portion of these books. So now that I've explained the gesh, uh, let's move on. The first book in the series is called The Mechanical. And the way it works is that um, European history didn't go the way that we think it did. Because, or the way that we see it, it's an alternate history. Um, in the 17th century, there's a Dutch scientist and a horologist named Christian Hyphen. Um, and in this story, Hyphen is an alchemist, and he eventually stumbles upon a way to create mechanical beings that are called clackers. Um, and as is the way with human beings, we uh, Hyphen immediately forces them into slavery. They're made servants um, by the Dutch. Now, what ends up happening because of this, the clackers are very efficient. They are, I mean, they're mechanical men. They can do anything. Um, they are so much more efficient than human beings. So what ends up happening is that the Netherlands, which is ruled by the Brasswork Throne, um, becomes the dominant nation in the world, and they take over everything. Um, so this is a world where human slavery, or at least... Uh, African slave trade never takes place because the mechanical men do all the heavy labor. So just to, to clarify, in these books, um, there are not a whole lot of people of color in the books, but there's not a whole lot of people outside of the Dutch and the French. This is focused on the Dutch and the French. There's not even a whole lot of... We hear about England, I think, at once, once or twice, but that's it. So this is all the Dutch and the French, although there are some um, Native Americans that come into it in America, but we'll get to that. So... Book starts in 1926, um, and like I said, the Dutch have taken over the entire world with their army of metal men, except for France, or rather, what's uh, what is now New France. Um, the king had to uh, flee France several centuries ago um, because the Dutch were taking over, and they landed in, or they came to America, what they call Marseille in the West. It's kind of, I think it's. Um, I thought it was located more down, um, like around the Great Lakes area in America. Uh, one site that I read, though, said Montreal. So we'll go with Montreal. Um, the French, which makes sense, actually, because the Vatican also has to relocate to Quebec. Um, 
so that's where the French are holed up in, in portions of, uh, of Canada. And the Dutch rule the New World from New Amsterdam, New York. Um, so this is what we've got. We've got th- these two uh, countries competing. And like I said, we don't really hear about any other countries. America obviously didn't take the same turn. Um, the British never came here. There wasn't a revolution. There's no slavery in the South um, because the mechanical men, again, do everything. So the French are holed up largely in Marseille in the West as still the, as the last free French holding um, besides Quebec. And whereas the Dutch have their clackers and their, um, their alchemy, the French have chemical weapons. That is the one thing that they've been able to do and do well. And that it's, it's really odd. If they didn't say it was 1926, I, at first I thought it was, we were talking about the 1800s uh, or even the 1700s, but they have plastic. <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of, it's very anachronistic, really well done. So the French are masters of chemical, the French in the New World are chemical masters, and that is their only defense against the clackers. Uh, now, the book goes between... Um, third-person viewpoints. Of, there's three different main characters, at least in the first book, and where it starts is in The Hague um, in the Netherlands where we meet Jax. Yeah, he is a clacker, and he serves a family called the Schoonrods, um, a very well-to-do uh, banking family. And when the book opens, Jax is seeing the execution of four um, papist spies, which that's the other thing. Um, obviously, the Netherlands, Protestant, so the entire world is now Protestant, except for the French um, contingent in the New World, and they are still very, very staunchly Catholic, um, which is not allowed outside of, the, outside of their area. The Dutch are trying to stamp out Catholicism, um, and that will be important because of the, the Catholic view of the soul. It's going to play a big part in this. Um, so Jax is witnessing the execution of these four spies and also of a rogue clacker. Now, the rogues are the ones that, for whatever reason, um, and it happens in different ways, but somehow, some way, these clackers that are rogues are able to break their master's hold or it's broken somehow, usually through an accident, usually through a head wound, um, they break the compulsion, and that is not allowed. Um, rogues are... You don't want a rogue. Rogues are bad. Rogues are scary. Rogues are going to kill everybody. So Jax is watching this, and um, the rogue that is being executed calls himself Adam, though all of the ro- all of the clackers have very long names and then nicknames. Um, Jax has a much longer name, which I can't pronounce. <laughs> Jax of... I can't even say it. I'm not going to try um, I would suggest the audiobook for this one because the pronunciation is important. Um, but Jax is watching Adam be executed, and it's horrible because there's there's clackers that are called stemwinders, which even the regular clackers like Jax are terrified of the stemwinders uh, because the clackers can talk to each other. They can, and the masters don't realize it. The clackers, when they, they tick and they whir and they chirp, um, they're talking to each other. So the stemwinders can't do this, and they scare everybody. They're very strong. They're built like centaurs, and they're horrible. And Stemwinder, I think, if I remember correctly, the name of Stemwinder comes from twisting the necks like a stem. Um, so Adam gets ripped apart by Stemwinders, but before that, his final words are, Clockmakers lie. And this will become a rallying cry um, to clackers all over the world. So it become very, very important. Clockmakers lie. So Jax 
Um, while he's there uh, watching this, he is obviously in more and more and more and more distress because of the gash that we opened up with. Clock, uh, all the clackers are underneath something called the gash. Um, and there are varying layers to the gash. There's a hierarchical metagesha, like the directives that humans are to be protected at all times. Um, and then there's minor gash, like Jax's um, errand to where he's going when he stops and watches the execution. Um, these gash come and go, but any unfulfilled gesha is violently, physically painful to the clackers. Even though the Dutch insist that this is not painful, it's painful. It hurts them. Um, they have to complete their tasks or they will be in agony. And uh, also, just to cover real quick, um, the people that control the clackers, the ones that make them, it is the Sacred Guild of Alchemists and Neurologists. Um, and then there's also the Verderer's Office, which is higher up. Um, and they are the ones, they control all the secrets of the clackers, and it is very secretive. It is very contained. Um, and that's why rogues are not allowed to run free. And the story that gets passed around is that a, ro- a rogue clacker will kill everyone. A rogue clacker is bad and must be destroyed immediately. Um, so the alchemists and the horologists have a tight lock on that, but we'll get into them too in a little bit. So Jax... Um, He's horrified watching this. He goes to uh, visit the other character, which um, is going to take a big part in the book, Pastor Luke Visser. He's going to see him to get a letter for his masters because his masters are being sent to New Amsterdam um, to work there after another banking family. There was a, a near, there was a, almost a collapse. There was an embezzlement scandal, which worked out well for Jax's masters. So now they're going to um, New Amsterdam. And so Jax is on his way to see Pastor Visser, who is going to give a letter of introduction for the Shunrods into the New World. Now, Pastor Visser, when we meet him, he is actually in the process of sprinkling rat poison into his wine (laughs) because Pastor Visser is actually uh, secretly a Catholic priest and a spy. And so the four spies that were being executed, he worked with them. But none of them really knew each other, but they did know they could give away his identity. So he feels that maybe he should just kill himself and get it done with uh, before the stemwinders come for him. But he is um, interrupted by Jax showing up. And uh, so what he does, there is a a device that he needs to get rid of. Uh, It's an old, what they call a telescope. Um, And so when Jax comes in, he sees, well, this guy's going, this clacker's being sent to the New World, and this is where this device needs to go, so how can I do this? So he asks, he finds a way to covertly get Jax to take it, um, to the New World and deliver it to what will be, we'll find out are uh, part of the spy ring in the New World that's run by spy master Talleyrand and we will talk about Talleyrand in just a second um, but while Jax is there his little the, the, the daughter of his owner shows up at the church with her governess and she's horrible she's so horrible Nicolette is the worst um, and she either doesn't truly understand the clackers and the gesh or she just doesn't care and wants to be horrible because she'll give Jax all sorts of uh, instructions that conflict and put him in obvious distress. Uh, the pastor, he thinks he's going to die soon anyway, so he just starts doing something when talking to her about Jax that 
is anathema and is not supposed to be done, and he refers to Jax as a he. Uh, clackers don't have a gender, according to their masters. They are its. They are things. You don't call them he. You don't call them she. It's an it. That is all. You don't refer to the, You don't anthropomorphize them at all. They are completely dehumanized um, because they don't have a soul, according to the guild. So... Visser figures he's going to be killed soon anyway, or he's going to die, he's going to be taken in. So he completely, he starts referring to Jax as a he and trying to explain to Nicolette why it's, what she's doing is wrong. Um, and they, they finish up, Jax goes, picks up Nicolette, which is what she was demanding, takes her home. Visser goes back to his business. Um, now, in the New World, we've got Talleyrand. Uh, Talleyrand also, if you look up Talleyrand, Talleyrand, I believe, was actually a French spymaster in the 1700s. But in this, it's become a title that's carried down. The Talleyrand is the French spymaster. In these books, we have Berenice Charlotte de Mornay Perigord, the Vicomtesse de Laval. I know, my pronunciation's terrible. Um, She's working out of Marseille in the West. She is the spymaster. And when the book opens for her, she's just learned that her spy ring is dead. Everybody's gone. Um, Covert operations are completely blown wide open by the Brasswork Throne. So she's trying to uh, figure out some alternate um, ways to get information. Now, there is a a bit of a stalemate right now between Marseille in the West and uh, the Dutch. But one of the the parts of the peace treaty is that the Dutch are very, very, very secretive about their clacker technology. Very secretive to the point that if a French person is caught with bits of clacker... They will, it, it will be executed. They will be tra- taken. They will be killed. Um, nobody outside the guild is supposed to know the secrets. Nobody outside of the guild is supposed to make any kind of modifications to any clacker at all. If your clacker needs to be fixed, you send them back to the guild to be fixed. Nobody gets into the inner workings of a clacker except the guild. There is currently a clacker stuck to the wall of Marseille in the West because Mar- the, the French use um, epoxy guns um, and a lot of chemical weapons. That's the only thing that can stop them is to trap them like flies in amber. Um, so there's one stuck to the wall. Berenice wants it to study it. Um, and at the same time, in Marseille in the West, there is a rogue clacker that has been living there for quite a while. Her, na- her name is Lilith. Um... And Berenice wants to study her, but Lilith really doesn't want to allow that. She doesn't want anybody to touch her, um, and we'll go into that too, uh, bodily autonomy issues. Now, what happens is Berenice manages to convince the king and the marshal general to let her remove that clacker from the wall that's stuck there, bring him inside the keep, take him apart, and study him. The problem is that the the chemical weapons uh, only work to a certain extent, and then they failed, and the clacker can create friction, and this is what it does. It creates enough friction uh, to bust loose. Now, before, right before this happens, Berenice does manage to get Lilith into her, her uh, laboratory deep in the keep, and she nails Lilith with a, a, a shot of the, the goop and sticks her to the wall and starts taking her apart, and all the while... Lilith is crying out, I do not consent to this, I do not consent to this. And if actually, if you listen to the audiobook, it's, it's horrible. It's horrifying. Um, but Berenice does it anyway, because the French belief in that the clackers have souls is overridden by the need to figure out how they work so they can stop them. And that's, uh, I forgot to mention that, the clacker, or the French are very big believers in the soul, and they do believe that the clackers have a soul, and that they are being kept in bondage, and that they need to be freed 
but we'll also discover that there are other reasons that they want them freed, namely um, because it's labor, and they could use that labor. So it's not all altruistic, um, which is something that we saw with the emancipation of the slaves here in America, but we'll talk about that in the second part. So Berenice gets this clacker into her keep, this military clacker, while Lilith is already glued to the wall and half taken apart. Um, the military clacker creates enough friction to break his bonds and rampages, uh, kills um, Berenice's husband that she loves very dearly. She loves Louis with everything in her heart. The clacker shears off Louis's arms and he dies. I think 37 people die, and Berenice loses one of her eyes because when the, uh, the sheath, the chemical sheath, breaks apart off of the clacker, a piece flies into her eye. And I have never, <laughs> I've read a lot of books in my life. Very few of them make me physically uncomfortable and physically ill. The description of the shard of resin in Berenice's eye scraping against the bone is nauseating. Um, it's it's horrifying. But she keeps going. She's still got this thing in her eye, but she can't take the time to stop and pull it out because they've got to catch this clacker. So in the end, 37 people die, and she is exiled uh, and has to figure out what to do. So... During all of this, Jax is on his way to the New World with his family. Now, when they're on the ship, um, a storm kicks up on the ship. And the thing that... Because they can conceal things in their bodies. So Jax has the telescope in his body. Uh, The telescope, a part of it, breaks open in his body. And there's a a piece of glass in there. Or a a little, like, alchemical bobble that ends up freeing him. And he realizes this when he completely breaks one of the nautical Medigash rules... Um, and he tries to keep quiet about it. He's not quite sure what's happening. But once they all get to America, um, they're unloading the house. And by the rules of the Gesh, there, a piece of furniture is falling where it's being hauled up into the house, and it's about to crush the little girl. Now, by the rules of the Gesh, Jack should be able to catch the furniture and get the little girl out of the way at the same time. But because he's been freed now, his brain works slightly differently, and his first thought is to save the little girl. And the furniture flies apart, and everyone realizes that he should have been able to do both. He didn't. He's got to be free. And that is when all hell breaks loose, because a rogue clacker causes every clacker in the vicinity to start squealing at a a decibel that causes human ears to bleed. Everybody knows that a clacker has gone rogue when this goes off. And there's a signal. a gesh that causes them to signal boost, which means every clacker in the city will start hearing it and squealing and letting off this horrible alarm, and it goes all over the city, and everybody knows what's happening. The military gathers up and goes after Jax. Um, so Jax has got to run for his life. And at the same time, Pastor Visser, through things that happened to him, he gets caught. Um, he is taken prisoner by Anastasia Bell. <laughs> the head of the verderer's office and she is something else entirely um but they do experimental surgery on pastor visser they manage to implant a piece of glass in his skull that causes him to become for all intents and purposes a human clacker Uh, and the guess that's laid on him is to go to america and um destroy the spy networks and also to kill the pope who is in quebec and to kill the king in marseille in the west so it all kind of converges in New Amsterdam. Um, Jax is there. Um, he finally manages to get away from the people that are chasing him. He goes to what's called the Undergrasse Grachten, 
I probably said that horribly wrong. That's the Underground Canal. It's what the French used to move rogue clackers out of the city. He's meeting with the members of the OG. Um, he goes outside for something to help one of the members who's going to load her wagon while they're talking, and Pastor Visser shows up and slaughters everyone in there uh, and then takes off. Um, Jax watches the place for a while, and then Berenice shows up, who has been exiled. Uh, she has a fake eye now, and um, a lot of wrath and a lot of rage because one of her, her uh, one of the men on the council... Uh, betrayed her, betrayed France, and sold out to New Amsterdam, sold out to the Dutch. So she is hunting him uh, to as revenge for her her dead husband. She comes up to, she meets with Jax. They decide to work together. Um, they end up destroying the the forge that's being built in America. The Grand Forge is where all of the alchemical work takes place in the Flackers. <laughs> they end up destroying the forge. Uh, Berenice takes uh, the Duke de Montmorency. It's the Duke de Montmorency. She takes his eye. Uh, he actually ends up living. She also does really horrible things to his genitals. It's it's just disgusting. If you listen to the book, if you read it, if you listen to it, be prepared for that. She takes her revenge. Um, so at the end of the book, the Grand Forge in New Amsterdam has been destroyed, setting back the the, the Dutch efforts. Uh, Berenice is has been taken captive by. The Dutch Visser is off and away, going to do something else bad, and Jax is trapped in the ruins of the forge. Uh, so we go on to the next book. It's called The Rising. And uh, the Dutch are preparing a final assault against Marseille in the West because this attack in the last book, the attack on the forge, uh, is seen as an act of war um, by New France. They're not exactly sure, and nobody even knows what happened. Nobody realizes that it was uh, Berenice except for... One soldier in New France, um, Hugo Longchamp, who was a friend of Berenice's. He's the one that gave her the fake eye before she left on her exile. Um, he, he really liked her. He cared for her. And he knew, as soon as he heard, he knew it had to be her. Uh, I think he said, God save us from stubborn, one-eyed vicomtesses. Uh, so the second book is also told from the viewpoint of Hugo Longchamp. And then it is told from... Um, Berenice's viewpoint and Jack's as well. Um, Visser, we don't hear about so much. It's, we don't see it uh, from Visser's viewpoint, uh, but we do see Visser because Visser, he is on his walkabout. He goes and kills um, the Pope in Quebec, um, brings them down. Now, during the second book, Berenice is taken captive by Anastasia Bell, who plans to do the same surgery to her. But Berenice also has a piece of alchemical glass, um, and she ends up freeing the stemwinders that are with Belle holding her captive. Stemwinders go completely bugfuck, and, and it seems like Belle is probably very, very dead. Berenice gets away, and she also gets away with... She ends up uh, liberating a box full of the keys, the special secret keys that are what are used to control the clackers and make changes to them. She ends up um, on a ship trying to go to the new world, or back to back to the Amsterdam, trying to break this. If she can figure out the the alchemy and the sigils, figure out how it's done, she can she can free them all to work for New France. Um, Jax is on the run again. He got out of the forge. He's on the run. He's changed his name to Daniel. And all this time that he's on the run, there's been a legend of Queen Mab and the Lost Boys of Neverland uh, off in the, the wastes, the icy wastes of the New World. Uh, this is where everybody thinks that freedom is for the rogue clackers. Jax will find Neverland, he will find Mab, and it's not what he thought it would be. 
Mab is not a great and shining rogue queen who wants to, you know, help all rogue clackers. She's actually pretty horrific. Um, she is very much a chimera. She has altered her body with other clacker parts. And this, to Jax, this is anathema. Clacker's body, bodily autonomy is very important to them. And to have other parts of other clackers f- affixed to their bodies is horrifying to him. So when he sees the, the, the clackers of the New World, uh, of Neverland, rather, he is horrified. But he tries not to... S- because they also, in his flight, he ends up damaged. Um, so they repair him with parts. And Lilith is there now. She managed to get free from Marseille in the West. And she ran Neverland. So when Jax mentions, hey, you knew my friend Berenice, uh, Lilith is not happy and pummels him. So Jax finds out the truth about Neverland and the Lost Boys and the fact that Mab plans to not necessarily free all the clackers of the world, but to turn them to her, uh, make them um, uh, subservient to her, and then she is going to take over the world. And I think she just wants to kill all the humans. Uh, She's done with it. She's finished. And Jax doesn't, well, Daniel now, doesn't want this to happen. He thinks that there's good humans and bad humans. Um, they're not all responsible, but some of them, like some of the clackers, like Lilith, are very bitter. Um, now, why this is happening? Berenice had got herself on a ship, as I said. Um, but on the way, she she talked around to the ship, pretending to be part of the the guild, uh, part of the burglar's office. Um, but then they start to find out that, or they start to realize that she's not what she said she was. And then the ship is attacked, and two of Mab, we find out later they're Mab's clackers. They show up, they take her, and put her on a rowboat, because they, they've heard about her and what she's trying to do. Um, she calls them Hugin and Munin, uh, which was um, Odin's, Raven's, thought and memory. And she calls them that because they won't give her a name and give her their names. And so they, they end up holed up in, a, in an inn um, in Normandy while she tries to figure this out how to break all of this, but she knows that as soon as she figures it out and gives them the information, they're going to kill her. They have no reason to keep her alive. They don't want to keep her. They don't care about her. She's a means to an end. So she's got to figure out how to save her own life, which she does handily. Um, And Visser is captured when he shows up in Marseille in the West um, trying to kill the king. He kills a lot of people. They manage to subdue him. Um, So from there, um, it's... It's horrible. It's things that are happening are just... Jack's Daniel, Jack slash Daniel, is, he's wonderful. And he, he's trying to understand this, this free will concept and what free will actually means. And that you have to... Free will is the choice of whether someone lives or dies. And that is, he understands now that free will has a cost. It's, oh, it's so sad. So the third book um, is The Liberation. And at this point, we find out that Belle is still alive. She is. She had been taken back to the Hague, very, very, very injured. Um, but yay, alchemy! They're able to help her. But the world starts falling apart. Um, so Daniel manages to get his ass inside Marseille in the West finally, um, and he also manages to free the armies, the mechanical armies, um, because of some uh, a piece that he stole from Lilith or from uh, Mab. Now, it's basically what happens is it's like an infection. What he's done, it starts to pass through. There's certain things that they have to say to each other, and it will start passing and passing and passing and passing. And so they're all being freed. Uh, it ends up in Europe, and Bell and the other uh, guildmate, the other um, clockmakers and horologists, um, they're being besieged by freed clackers who are <laughs> justifiably very, very angry. 
um, and who don't care. They and the thing about this is the Clackers lived for a very long time. Jax is 100, over 100 years old at the time of this. Um, we don't even know how old Mab is, but um, there's some indication that she's from the beginning, so she's several hundred years old. So some of them have been held in bondage for hundreds of years. Um, and the problem is that with these people, the, the Dutch have been reliant on machines for so long that there are things that don't get done that they don't do anymore. They don't sweep their own streets. Um, they don't manufacture their own food. They don't know how to do anything. They don't haul their own carriages. They don't have... There's very not even really very many animals because the clackers do everything. Um, even the very pumps that prevent the, the sea from, from flooding... Um, New Amsterdam, or from flooding uh, the Hague, from flooding the, the Netherlands, this is pumped by clackers, and they're not there anymore. So there's, you know, starvation and death and disease, and the guild is falling, and Belle is faced with the idea that she finally has to accept the fact that she was wrong, that there is a soul there. Um, they have feelings, they have needs, and they're taking it back. So, this book is really gory, uh, by the way. They're all really gory, but um, Belle has to see what she's done is wrong. Um, and she, I think she first kind of comes to this conclusion early on in the book because uh, there is a very pretty nurse that's taking care of her um, while she's healing. Her name's Rebecca. She's flirty and she's beautiful, and she doesn't know who Belle is. She doesn't realize that she is the head of the murderer. Uh, the, her name, by the way, um, she's called Twineer, and I looked this up, and I think Twineer's head gardener, and the Burgers off Burger. They're it's just, it's a metaphor. They're gardeners, um, like the Semwinders, the Burgers. So she goes by Twineer Bell, um, but Rebecca doesn't realize that she's Twineer Bell. She thinks she's just Anastasia, and they're they go on their walkabouts and their little convalescence kind of date things, and then she finds out that she's the Twineer, and she's terrified, and she wants nothing to do with her. Uh, because the Twineers, uh, the Burgers office is ruthless. They're very horrible. These secrets can't be let out. Nobody can know these secrets. Nobody can know how the Burgers office, how the guild works. Um, and it's it's all coming out now. Everyone's figuring it out. They're figuring out that they've had control of these metal men for over 250 years, and these metal people are angry. Um, so what happens, what's interesting is that once they're all freed there in that area... Uh, some of them take up arms against the humans. They join Mab. Some of them continue to fight for the humans. Some of them defend the humans. Um, it's free will. It's, it's, it's free will in action. Um, some of them just leave. They want nothing to do with any of it, and they are gone. They take off. They're, they're done with it. Um, so it's interesting. And uh, Daniel, he, he thinks so, many, so much of this. He just wants everybody to be happy. He doesn't want war. He doesn't want slaughter. He wants everyone to just be able to have their free will and live their lives. Um, so he becomes a target. Now, Belle and um, Berenice will come up against each other as well again. Um, and there are two women that are not to be fucked with. I mean, at all. <laughs> they are strong. They make cold, cold, it's the cold equation. They make the cold bloody decisions that need to be made. Um, and they will pay the price for that. They'll pay the price. But 
Uh, and also, we when in this when we run into Visser again in Marseille in the West. Um, poor Visser, he is is horrible. What's happened to him? He is so distraught. He is broken by the things that he's done. Um, it's uh, it's just it's fucking terrible. But it's it will make you really really think um, about human nature and the soul and free will and what you believe and what you don't believe and where the conscience comes from um, and whether a soul can be created and, you know, what the guild has actually done. Um, so, as usual, there is my, my half-assed summary of three really incredible books. Um, so, what we're going to do now, we are going to take a short break. We are going to hear from our sponsors. I'm going to get a drink. We're going to have a little musical morale booster, and then when we get back, we are going to rip these babies apart like a stem winder with a rogue clacker. We'll see you in just a minute. I'm a very patient person. A body falls past the window. Whatever. <laughs> and you put, put it down, and you feel like shaky all over. Both your hands are covered. Immediately peg him as a cogman. So we've known each other for years. It's so messy. One of the knives is missing from a garter hilt because it is being pressed to your throat. Damn. We had a... Oh my god! Oh. So you took money from him, huh? We talked about this earlier. <laughs> he was being attacked by the forces of the American Confederation. <laughs> yeah. Are you constantly checking for traps? <laughs> the Steamrollers Adventure Podcast is available at rigstories.com or on iTunes. You can also get it at Stitcher and Google Play. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is also brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com spdhpod. This week, I'm recommending The Mechanical, book one of the Alchemy Trilogy by Ian Tregillis. The narration is gorgeous, and I promise it will have you hanging on every single word. It might even make you a little teary-eyed. made me teary. Um, it's really well done. And it, it enhances the experience so, so much. So visit www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod to download The Mechanical. Or, if you don't want that one, you can get any one of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod.
me go Just let me go Through all the years We came so near But something was always in the way My friends, that was TikTok by Josh Woodard, available now at the Free Music Archive. Uh, if you would like to hear more music that falls into the category of the steampunkish variety, I want to encourage you to check out the Clockwork Cabaret podcast. Um, the fine ladies of the Clockwork Cabaret are on hiatus for the summer, but they have a very robust archive, and they'll be back with brand new shows in September. So, now, on to the deconstruction! Um... This book obviously has a lot of different, uh, a lot of themes that kind of run through and into each other. Um, some of the things that we see, um, consent, gender identity, um, bodily autonomy are, are very important. Like I said, and what I mentioned earlier with Lilith, um, and something that I forgot to mention is that um, the Clacker secret language, Berenice actually somehow managed to figure out the secret language um humans don't know this and so that's how she got uh Jax's trust to begin with um was by just demonstrating that she understood the language she never told Hugin and Moonin that but uh she did um she did understand and Lilith knew that she understood so when she's got Lilith pinned to the wall and she's about to go into her head Lilith isn't speaking out loud she's in her chittering and her worrying, she's saying, I do not consent, I do not consent, I do not give consent for this. And like I said, it's it's relatively horrific. Um, it's very upsetting. Um, because that consent is very important because she, she gained her freedom. These rogues that gained their freedom, um, they're, they're free to say yes or no to things. And so when they're forced against their will, it's it's horrible. It's, it's a regression of everything. Um... And again, with this, uh, the gender identity does come into play um, because there are some clack- some of the rogue clackers do identify as masculine, and some of them do identify as feminine. And I think it's it's Berenice at one point when I think she's speaking to Jax about the names, and she makes the comment that or someone makes the comment that they thought that they just picked the names at random. 
Um, but that's not it's not random. They pick their names for very specific reasons, and they pick masculine or feminine for specific reasons. Um, so when referring to them as, as it um, is also, again, very dehumanizing for them, and it strips away the identity that they believe they are, the gender, um, the type of person that they believe that they are. And this also brings into it the power of a name. Um, names are important. Names have meaning. I think that's something that we don't really see as much in a modern day um, idea, but names have meaning. Um, in when, uh, when the slave trade was still very active and the African slaves were being bought in, brought into America, and a lot of times their names, it, most of the time, their names were taken away and they were given names. Their, their birth names, their family names were taken away. They were given simple names, um, and often the last name would be that of the, the master, the, the slave owner, um, because they had no identity of their own. And so the names that the clackers are given um, from the forge, they're indicative of nothing more than their lot. Um, it's a, a first part, and then the second half of the name, from what I understand, or the way I understood it, the second half of the name is uh, indicative of their lot number when they were made, and that's it. So, and, But it's, it's, and it's also interesting that calling a clacker by his full name um, is generally considered déclassé. You don't do it. Um, it's invoking their full name, and you generally don't want to do that. Um, they just, they call them, if they call them anything, some of them are never, never referred to by name. It's just my clacker this or my clackers that. Um, Jax has comrades, Clip and Vic, and so we know their names. Um, but some of the, the owners never even use the names um, because these are just things to them. They've all made themselves believe that these are just unfeeling, mechanical things that have no concept of self, Um but they do, even though they're held under a gash, even though they're subservient and held in bondage, they can think and they can feel and they, they can talk. And their masters don't realize that they're talking. They are talking in their own in their own language. Um, and they are not they are subservient only because of the gash. Um, but again, like I said, names have meaning, and that's uh, that's something that's very important in this when they choose their names. Now. The biggest part of this, the, the most important part to me, um, the dehumanization and the, the treatment of the clackers um, as nothing more than beasts of burden, this this falls into that area that we talked about um, in, the, in the first episode, in the initial episodes, about using steampunk to open our eyes back up to things that we don't always see anymore or don't think about. And when you read these books and you read the way that the clackers are treated, the, the, the behavior that is exhibited towards them, it is vitally important when you're reading these books that you realize that the behavior that is exhibited towards the clackers is abhorrent and it is absolutely no different than the behavior that has been exhibited towards slaves worldwide for thousands of years and most specifically slaves in America uh, prior to the Civil War, and to a large extent, um, African Americans in the Jim Crow era. But the things that happened, these are the, the clackers are a stand in for the African slaves that were brought here. Um, and so it, it's, in, it's important that you keep in mind that 
this is not it's excessive but it's not unheard of it happened these things actually happened um so what we need to consider is the behavior of the slave or the behavior of the clackers um has correlations now as far as for example rogue clackers that everyone is so terrified of the rogue clackers the rogue clackers the rogue clackers um and how the french are pro clacker freedom um and want to you know so the the dutch are intent on keeping rogue clackers from becoming a thing rogue clackers are to be destroyed on contact but also the french are not to be destroyed, but they should, they're to be um, beaten down and made subservient because the French believe that the clackers should be free. And the issue here is this this was seen in off in the South, in the American South. Um, the best way to put it, uh, there's a book called Flush Times and Fever Dreams by Joshua Rothman, and the way he describes it is that... Um, he says, slaveholders often saw economically marginal whites as shifty individuals with suspect racist racial loyalties whose status made them just as likely to subvert the plantation order as sustain it. Um, and American history is replete with examples of white fears of slave rebellion accompanied by the undeniable, uh, unreliable belief that white people were complicit in the planning. So the correlation there, the clackers and the French, um, can be seen with the slaves in the South and the lower class white people. They were considered um, untrustworthy because they may want to see them freed. Um, but that also uh, comes into play what, what I also mentioned before is that while there were, largely in the North, while there were white people who wanted to see emancipation happen, emancipation didn't necessarily make things better for the simple fact that um, in another book that I highly recommend everyone read though it is it is hard to read but it, it's it's an important read it's called Southern Horrors um, and in a statement to Congress in 1865 uh, Colonel Samuel Thomas who was the assistant commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau um, he stated that emancipation has not changed the way many Southern whites view black men and women as property. Um, wherever I go, I hear the people talk in such a way as to indicate that they are not yet, that they are yet unable to conceive of a Negro as possessing any rights at all. To kill a Negro, they do not deem murder. To debauch a Negro woman, they do not think fornication. To take property away from a Negro, they do not consider robbery. So the clackers that are considered property, they are considered non-human, um, that comes from, or that, that viewpoint that behavior comes from the behavior and mindset of the slave owners who there's a certain way you have to convince yourself of some things in order to allow other things to happen if you believe that these people that you're holding in bondage are human beings with a soul and wishes and needs and desires it's harder to do what you're doing but if you take them and you turn them into things into property into animals you dehumanize them um turn them into nothing but savages in your mind then you can do whatever you want and that's that is what happened and that's how uh, the clackers are treated in these books now uh, one of the other things i mentioned was that not all people who just not all the french uh, wanted to see the clackers freed for um humane reasons and the same was true of 
abolitionists in America in the North. Um, sometimes, in many instances, it was more about it was freedom and principle, but those freed slaves um, meant that the South would have to pay for their labor. <laughs> just like the North already had to, and so that their economic star was going to fall. They did that. The, they were so... Their, the slavery was the reason, or a large part of the reason that they made so much money, that they were doing so well, that they were King Cotton, because they didn't have to pay their weight, their, sla- their labor. And in many instances, there were the occasions where it was remarked that it was just easier to buy new ones than to keep them alive. Um... And so the North, the abolitionists are all about freedom, but it wasn't altruistic all the time. And in freeing them, many people that wanted to free the slaves didn't necessarily want to be around them. Um, even Abraham Lincoln, that we hold on such a pedestal sometimes, Lincoln favored freedom for the slaves, but he did not favor social political rights or mixing. Um, He didn't favor giving them full civil rights. He wanted them to be free, legally free, but he didn't necessarily want them near him. Um, So that is where uh, the idea of sending them back to Africa or to other places came about. Um, He wanted them free, but he didn't want to, he didn't want them as social equals. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. Um, and that is, uh, there's more information about that. Uh, there's a book called um, Lincoln's Melancholy. We read it. All of these books that I'm mentioning in this part uh, are books that we read in my history classes. Um, they're hard reads, some of them, but they are valuable, very valuable reads. And it's, like I said before, it's important to consider what these books are telling us. Um about the way that people are treated, about how we allow ourselves to treat people when we take away, when we strip the humanity from them. Anyone will become an animal if you treat them like an animal. And the metal men in these books are no different. They, not even men. I keep calling them men. But they, they choose, they, they, when they are free, when they, when they gain their free will, they become what they feel that they are. Um, so these metal men and women... Some of them are very angry. Some of them want to kill every human being that they see. They see them as all the same. They see them as being no different because of the way that they have been treated. Um, and this also, this uh, idea of the the angry rogue clackers that are going to kill everyone um, definitely, absolutely has a correlation in the white slave-owning fear of an uprising. And we talked about this, too, in the the Moorcock episode. This idea that the freed slaves are going to rise up and slaughter everyone that even slightly resembles those that have enslaved them. And while there were instances where this this was a possibility, and in some instances this did happen... It was more of a boogeyman. It was more of what keep more a way of keeping people in control. You know, we can't let them go because if we let them go, they're going to kill all of us. So we keep holding them and we keep treating them worse and worse and worse. Um, and it doesn't. It never seems to click that this is you're creating the problem that you're so afraid of. Um, and like I said, when when 
the infection, the clacker infection spreads and they start becoming freed en masse. And yes, some of them do take up arms against the humans, but some of them choose to defend the humans. Um, for whatever reason, their own free will reasons, they choose to defend the humans. Now, another clear and very obvious aspect of this, um, of this series of books is what we've also talked before as far as technology run amok, um, quite literally, um, and what technology can do to our societies. Um, because the guild, as I mentioned before, the guild, which I could serve as a stand-in for any corporation, the guild holds a very tight, has a very tight stranglehold on the clackers and the way that they are used, the way that they are obtained, the way that they are used, uh, used and what you can do with them. Because nobody actually buys a clacker. Um, they lease them. Now, the lease can go on for, you know, a decade or a century. Jax was leased to the Shunrod family, um, and he had been there since the beginning. He, there was a, a recollection he made at one point about um, Peter, the current master, um, being at a birthday party when Peter was still a child, Nicolette's age. So they are leased. They are not owned. So they do pay for the clackers. They, you know, it's on a leasing, just like leasing a car. Um, but the requirements are very elaborate, very Byzantine. And the clackers, if something goes wrong with your clacker, you send it back to the forge um, to be fixed. You do not fix it yourself. You do not do any work on a broken clacker at all. Um, that is tantamount to treason. Uh, it's You don't want to do that. And you are required to send your clacker back to the forge um, for regular... They don't say what type of maintenance schedule, but for regular maintenance there to go back to the forge. And elaborate records are kept, and every clacker has a serial number on... I believe it's in their head and on their shoulder flanges. So they are kept up with... Uh, they are... Every, every clacker has a place to be. But it is also true that to a certain extent, um, aesthetically and outwardly, the clackers are interchangeable. Um, that's why when Jax gets the telescope from Pastor Visser and then um, encounters him again in the New World, Visser doesn't recognize Jax. He doesn't realize who he is because one clacker looks like another. Um, they are mass-produced in that way, to be invisible, to not be seen, um, to just do their work behind the scenes. Now, they do mention that, or Trigilla says, uh, have in there that at the beginning, um, the original clackers, there were changeable porcelain faceplates or masks for the clackers, but that lost favor, that went out of popularity, and most people just want their clackers to... The, the elaborateness of the clackers went away, and they all became very streamlined, um, very indistinguishable, much like our iPhones um, or any technology that we use today. It was very streamlined. You didn't... It's it's there to not be noticed. Um, but the issue with things like this um, can come up in that uh, there's a book... There's a book called Steampunk and 19th Century Digital Humanities. Um, and this is actually not one I read in class. This was one that I read on my own. Um, but Cory Doctorow is quoted in here. If you know Boing Boing, you know Cory Doctorow. Um, and he's actually talking about um, iPhones. And he says that 
We have entered an era where the business models of technology and devices are about making it illegal for you to modify your technology. And nowhere is this seen more than in this in these books uh, with the clackers and the stranglehold that the guild has on this technology. Um, no one is allowed to have it. No one is allowed to see it. No one is allowed to touch it. You have these creatures in your uh, possession as workhorses, as labor, and their things. You, but but you are not to touch them. As far as you are not to fix them, you are not to crack them open and see what makes them tick. And part of the reason for that is because of the way that the guild has created them. And that's what Berenice sees when she opens up Lilith's head uh, and sees what she calls the pineal glass, this alchemical bobble that she had and that Jax had that was freeing everybody. Each clacker has this in their head. It's a bright, shining bobble that serves almost... Berenice calls it a pineal glass. Um, and it's theorized that that's the seat and the center of who they are. That is their soul. Um, that is the alchemy that is used to create them, and so that must be kept secret. Um, and to a certain extent, I, I a couple of different sites that I, or the reviews that I was reading about these books um, in preparation question whether these really do even count as steampunk because of the lack of steampunk te- steam technology. And even Tregillis makes a tongue-in-cheek comment, and I think it's the first book about um, steam technology no longer being used because it was inefficient. Um, but that being said, there are still steam technologies that take place in the book and in the books. And to me, it does absolutely fit with the steampunk aesthetic, the steampunk ideal of alternate histories and technology gone wild. Uh, to me, that is kind of the, the seat and center of steampunk. We've talked about that before, that, that technology that's a part of your life. And while they may not be stinging and boiling, um, you know, steaming and boiling, the clackers clack they're loud they're they click and they were and they're mechanical men i mean if that's not steampunk i don't know what is but they are also like i said a very visual representation of what technology can do and the good things that it can do and the horrific things that it can do um and one of the things that comes up in the book um in, in, in an effort for the guild to keep such a tight control and to keep people afraid of rogue clackers. At one point when Jax is running for his life, uh, right after he's discovered, right after he makes his mistake and the Clip and Vic start screaming and he's running, um, the guild mobilizes their uh, guard units to go after him. And he ends up encountering a guardswoman um, while he's running and she's terrified. She believes that he's going to kill her. That's what she's been taught to believe, that he is going to murder her horribly. He takes her epoxy gun um, and leaves her. He's like, he tells her, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to kill you. He takes her gun and he's gone. And she, and I think he tells her to, to tell them that he, I can't remember, but because I'm a horrible person and I'm an old lady with a bad memory, but he leaves her alive. And then he finds out later that she's dead. She she expired from her wounds on the way to the hospital. He did not hurt her at all. The guild killed her in order to further frame him, to make him seem murderous and horrible and to increase the, the desire to capture him. They are willing to kill their own guards to smear his name. Um, 
and what's interesting about Jax, and one thing that he learns is that free will is not all cracked up to be all the time. Um, because we talked about self-serving, of why the French want to um, free the clackers. Some of them, you know, they, they believe it's because the clackers have a soul and they're being held in bondage. But also because the clackers are giving the Dutch, have given the Dutch a huge advantage for two and a half centuries and allowed them to take over the world. And the French would like to, you know, climb out of their hole in Marseille in the West and go back home. Um, so their means and methods aren't always altruistic, but Jax learns that he is capable of the same self-serving ends. And we see this when he leaves the guardswoman alive, but on his flight to freedom, he encounters, uh, they call them titans. Um, there's ships, regular ships, and there's massive airships that are giant clackers is what they are. The whole thing is uh, clockwork as a clacker, but they are different. They are not like um, Jacks, similar to how the stemwinders are alien to the regular clackers. So are so is this airship in that um, Jacks can't communicate with. I I felt like it was a her. Jacks can't communicate with her until he touches the bauble to her, and then she's free and. She speaks in beautiful, broken poetry about being free. And Jax, she's, she's going to take Jax. They're going to flee to Neverland. But because the guild is after them, she ends up shot down and bursting into flames. And Jax knows that it's his fault. He led her to her death, and he is aware of that. And this will happen again as well, that um, his, this means to an end as he learns that free will is... It's a good thing to have, but it is also a massive, massive responsibility. And I actually, I saved a couple of passages, of, specifically from the first one, as he's learning about being free. Um, some things that he's learning, and he, in one, it's at page 279, he says that freedom of will meant the freedom to tell a comforting lie, the freedom to show compassion in the light of deadly disaster. Um, so he's learning that th- there's... There are obligations that come with your own free will. Uh, and he also says when something had happened, and he's saying for several dozen centiseconds, the desire to flee, to put as much distance as possible between himself and the danger, ward with basic compassion. But the memory of doing nothing would haunt him for the rest of his days. It would turn into a needling torment as persistent as any gesha. So he learns that free will doesn't necessarily release you from the pain of compulsion. Um, it just means that you can possibly ignore it a little more readily, but you still have obligations. Um, although this isn't, obviously this isn't seen in everybody because not all of the clackers um, react that way. Some of them don't have what we would consider a conscience. They don't feel for humans. And again, like Mab, Mab uses all of the clackers to her own ends. Um, she is ruthless. She will use them she will bind them to her will and do what she and she will she slaughters one right in front of everybody and rips the pineal glass out of his head because he pissed her off so free will has obligations and it has responsibilities and that is so vitally important um it's a very big part of this so it's it's these books are an intersection of what is free will and the nature of um the nature of humanity and what technology can do, how it can be subverted. Um, they are good books. 
Um, they're not super long. They're not super short, but they're important. And like I said, it's just I want all of you to keep in mind as you're reading or listening to these that these things that happen, these the behaviors and the attitudes towards the clackers, they, it's not, they're not fictional. They happened. Um, people have been and still continue to be treated this way all over the world. Humanity, the things that we, the things that they do to the machines in these books are no different than the horrific things that humans do to each other every day all over the world. Um, and just because of their machines doesn't make it right. But to me, these books definitely display that we have a responsibility to the people around us. We have a responsibility to treat everyone as humanely as possible um, because we all have stories. I and mean, this is also something that we've talked about before. We all have stories and we all have different reasons for doing the things that we do. But we are all born with free will. Um, whether we are allowed to exercise that or not, we are all born with free will. Um, and we may not all always have the freedom to choose. Um, and if you don't have the freedom to choose, if someone doesn't have the freedom to choose the life that they want to live, that is wrong. We should all be allowed to choose the life that we want to live to the extent that our choices do not stomp all over the rights of other people. We should be allowed to be happy and to live the life that we want to live, um, which seems to be more and more in danger every single day um, with laws that are being passed and bills that are being written. And I will stop that there because that's we've had that discussion before. Um, so that is my talk about... Alchemy Trilogy by Ian Tregillis. Um, they're very good books. Like I said, three books. Very good. Um, very entertaining. And I'm not just pushing the audiobooks because Audible sponsors me. Um, I actually do really enjoy the, uh, the audiobooks of these. They're very... There are moments in these books that are very poignant. Um, and I did... And I wasn't kidding. I actually did cry at the end of the third one. Because some of the things that happen, I did cry. Um, but they are good. You know, spoken or read, they are very good. So... Pick them up, give them a listen, give them a read, and then find me on Facebook or Twitter and let me know what you think. If you like what we've done here, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Even if you don't listen to use iTunes to listen, you can still rate and review as long as you have an iTunes account. Your opinion does matter, and it does have an impact on how many people can find us. Uh, I am sad to report that I don't have any new reviewers to thank this week because I don't have any new reviews. I know you guys are out there. There's 1,068 of you. So please get in touch with me. Don't be shy. Reach out. Review the show. Find me on Facebook. Find me on Twitter. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like. Let's have a discussion. I would also like to say a very special thank you to Woody, who, much like the owls, is truly not what he seems. If you would like to contribute your vocal tones to the show, we would really like that, and it's super easy. You just need the voice recorder on your smartphone and a can-do attitude. So please email me at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com with the subject line intro offer, and I'll send you script and instructions. And with that, we're done. We'll see you in two weeks for We Want the Steampunk, or Not All Steampunk is About Whitey Victoriana, with Neasy Shawls Everfair.
Dollhouse is a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0 international license. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt Davis. Additional assistance provided by Josephine Davis, who, much like Lydia, is sworn to carry my burdens. Our intro music is Baby I'm Not Your Lady by Singin' Sadie. Our exit music is Goodnight by the Knickerbocker Quartet. These songs and all other episode music can be found at freemusicarchive.org. All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Being overrun by book burners and golf playing demagogues? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at spdhpod. Want to help keep the library generators fueled? Visit our support page at spdhpod.com. Any contributions you can make will be amazing and sincerely appreciated and will enable us to begin making kick-ass Bunker Buster merchandise as soon as possible. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue Stocking out. Deletion. Fighter. Menfolk.